Good morning. Would you please pray with me? Almighty God, we ask that you open us to receive your word and write it upon our hearts, so that in all that we do and say, we may be letters of your love. Amen. Friends, can you imagine yourself in ancient Israel in the early years before there was a temple, gathered for worship around an altar made out of stone, you and others would bring an offering. Some people brought forth drink offerings that they would pour out on the altar until the liquid was gone. Others would bring forth grain offerings, placing sheaves of wheat on the altar. They would then light it on fire. A few people would bring birds or small animals which were killed and placed on the altar to be consumed by the flames. What was the point? I wonder what would happen here if we collected the offering later today, put the plates on the communion table, and then set the plates on fire, (laughs) burning up everyone's money. Wouldn't we be appalled For one thing, destroying U.S. currency is illegal. (laughs) But besides the illegality of this act, we would be appalled by the waste of it. We would hate to see hard-earned money that could be used for good going to waste. So what was up with this sacrificial practice? The grain, the animals, the drink offerings. For the ancient Israelites, these were equivalents to money. What was the point of sacrificing such offerings to the Lord? This was a question that ancient Israel debated. And over time, its sacrificial system evolved. At its core, sacrifice was an act of worship. Worshippers brought things they valued to the altar as an act of devotion to God. We know from what some of the biblical prophets wrote that what mattered foremost to God was the worshiper's heartfelt sincerity and motivations. If their acts of devotion were false in any way, God didn't want them. If, for example, they were breaking God's laws, taking advantage of or disregarding the poor and vulnerable, God didn't want their sacrifices. If they made sacrifices so that others would see them as pious, or if their sacrifices were made out of a sense of compulsion or guilt, God didn't want them. In short, God didn't want gifts made in self-interest. In the verses of the psalm we heard this morning, God, God's self, questions the worshipers to see if they know what the point of making such sacrifices is. Here God asks them, do you think I need any of the things that you're giving me? Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all that is in it is mine. To the one to whom everything already belongs, what is the point of giving anything 
To be clear, God doesn't rebuke the act of giving to God. God just wants us to be clear about the right meaning, the right intention of giving to God. Giving to God is rightly an act of love and devotion to the God who is so good to us. When we give to God with this intention, we discover the essence of Christianity, the heartfelt relationship with God in which joy and thanksgiving replace self-interest and guilt. I remember a story a grown man once told. When he was a child, he lived in a small town. His mother often sent him to run errands for her. On one occasion, she sent him to the florist to pick up flowers for their dinner table. He was so nervous that his friends would see him and call him a sissy for carrying these flowers. And several years later, he returned to that same florist to buy flowers for a young woman whom he had fallen in love with. And walking across town carrying that bouquet of flowers, he felt no concern whatsoever about himself because he was just thinking of her and how happy the flowers might make her. You and I know that when we love someone, we want to give them things. Not because it's something we should do, but because it's something we want to do. Such giving is not particularly practical. The man in the story didn't say to himself, does she need flowers? Maybe a flashlight would be more practical. (laughs) The Bible is full of stories of giving. Giving that is practical and giving that is more extravagant. Turning to the New Testament, we discover the story of the Magi who bring gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then they go home. The Bible says nothing at all about the practical value and use of these gifts, about what Joseph and Mary may have done with them. The narrator's interest in these gifts was simply to show that the Magi gave of their treasures in a pure act of worship, expressing their devotion to the newborn Messiah. You may remember another story in which Jesus receives a gift of such devotion. A woman comes to Jesus with a jar of costly ointment and uses it to anoint his feet. You may remember, too, that Jesus' disciples criticized this gift, saying that the ointment should have been sold so that the proceeds could have been given to the poor instead. Aware of their criticism, Jesus praises the act as one of heartfelt devotion. Because of her heartfelt devotion, the offering of this gift became part of the gospel story. Other memorable stories include that of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who is so inspired by Jesus' visit to his home that he announces that he will give half of his wealth to the poor. And that of the widow, whose devotion outdoes Zacchaeus when she gives away all that she has, a penny. 
Even after having just criticized the corrupt practices of the temple, Jesus praises the woman who out of her poverty gives more than the rich do out of their abundance. When you read story after story about what people give to God, it becomes clear that what matters is the heartfelt devotion with which people give. If we give with love and gratitude for God, the questions of where we should direct our gifts, what we should give, and how much we should give will likely work themselves out. A pastor once shared a story from his, sorry, I almost fell backwards. <laughs> a pastor once shared a story from his first year serving a congregation. The congregation wanted him to visit all the inactive members to see if he could get them to return back to church. That is such a scary task. <laughs> there was a list of about 50 such members. Glad to get to know the congregation, however, he agreed. Visiting one family per week, he worked his way through this roster of inactive members over the course of a year. He said that while he didn't succeed in persuading many of them to return to church, he did hear a lot of stories. He heard stories about why people had quit coming to church. He heard that the liturgy included prayers of confession for things that they didn't really think applied to them. He heard that the Apostles' Creed was, was problematic because they couldn't fully assent to everything stated in it. Some people had been turned off by church politics or personal conflicts. He heard from some that the church had become too liberal or that the programs were not meeting their needs. They had different ideas with regard to what they thought the church should do for them. And he listened to all these stories. He couldn't help, however, in hearing these stories, but remembering what his mother used to say on Sunday mornings as she took her family to church. We are going to worship God. It never occurred to him that he was supposed to get anything out of it. No, they came to worship God. His mother would say, six days a week, God blesses us. And on Sundays, we give thanks. I know that a lot of hard work by a lot of people goes into making worship as meaningful and inspiring and uplifting as possible. A lot of intentionality goes into offering programs that will meet our spiritual needs and will help us to grow spiritually. A lot of resources go into ministries that are meant to help our neighbors in need. A lot of care goes into creating fellowship and a sense of belonging for everyone. Churches are called to serve people, and all of us make up the body of Christ that here and now is ready to serve. We come to church for all kinds of reasons, and there are many needs, our own and others, that we as a church strive to meet. What I have discovered, however, 
is that when Sunday after Sunday, we come to church to worship God, who is good to us, we are more likely to get something out of the experience than if we had come for some other reason. I'd like for us to think about this. It's, it's a hypothesis, really. When we come to church to worship God, we are more likely to get something out of the experience than if we had come for some other reason. I suspect this is true because when we worship God, we practice acknowledging that everything and everyone, including ourselves, belong to God. As an existential orientation, this makes all the difference in how we live our lives. Fundamentally, it means that we live as stewards. Being stewards is our God-given human vocation. As stewards, we own nothing and are entrusted to manage everything. We can either be faithful or unfaithful stewards. According to the Bible, unfaithful stewardship is not simply a matter of negligence or carelessness or laziness. The root cause of unfaithful stewardship goes deeper to a fundamental misunderstanding or false claim regarding ownership. The truth is that ultimately, nothing belongs to us, and everything belongs to God. This is precisely what scripture today tells us. The scripture tells us that even when, especially when, we think we are giving something to God, like when we're making an offering or a sacrifice to God, we need to know that everything already belongs to God. We need to be clear about what we are doing then when we give of our treasure, our time, our talent to God. In the psalm, God says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every wild animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all of the birds of the air, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and all that is in it is mine. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Jesus talked a lot about what we give. He talked a lot about money, not because he was a fundraiser for any particular cause, but because he cared about us and the condition of our hearts. Jesus knew that what we do with the things that we treasure determines the condition of our hearts. This applies to the poor as well as to the rich, to the widow who gave a penny just as surely as the chief tax collector. Jesus knew that the sacrifice acceptable to God is heartfelt devotion to God. And thank God for this. All of us 
have one life to live. None of us can take what we treasure with us when we die. None of us has control over what will happen to the treasures we leave behind. What is important then is to live our lives with the knowledge that everything belongs to God and as stewards to devote precious gifts of time, talent, and treasure to God whose grace goes before us and comes after us. Amen. Amen.